We are actually fighting on the Somme against the English. You can no longer call it war. It is mere murder. We are at the hottest place of the present battle, in Furrow Wood. All my previous experiences in this war, the slaughter at Ypres, and the battle in the gravel pit at Ulush, are the purest child's play compared with this massacre, and that is much too mild a description. I hardly think they will bring us into the fight again now, for we are in a very bad way. An unknown German soldier, Königlich Bayerische Zipzenter Infanterie Regiment Orf, High Wood, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 19, Psalm, A Bloody High Wood, Part 2. Thank you so much, everyone, for the recent reviews and donations to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to both donate and to review. Every donation is a generous one, and they all go towards server maintenance and the purchasing of new researching materials like books and articles. Every review shows the time you folks out there have taken to write some very kind words about the podcast and how much you have been enjoying them. It really means the world to me. Thank you. Admin note. I've got to make a correction regarding episode 18 and my description of the location of the German switch line trench running through High Wood. So, I said the switch line ran through the northwest corner of the wood, but in reality, it ran through the northeast corner. As anyone in my tank platoon from way back in the day could tell you, land navigation skills were always a needs improvement area for me. But if I may add, high wood is a roughly diamond-shaped wood with its top point being the northeast corner of the wood. And again, this is where the switch line ran through. Sorry about that. Okay, so back up to high wood. With the failure of the first attacks on the wood on the 15th of July, the British set about planning for the next go at the place right away. Rain delayed the next attack for days, however, pushing the next assault date back to the 20th. While water fell from the leaden skies above the sodden men of the British 4th Army, the equally sodden Germans of the opposing 1st Army kept up a second rain of deadly high-explosive shrapnel, and gas shells that continuously pounded and raked the valley that supplied all high wood and adjacent operations. Troops on reserve duty were almost always used as labor parties needed to carry any and all supplies up to the high wood area, and it all had to be brought up through the rain of shells that regularly obliterated men. The attack to take place on the 20th of July 
was to be carried out by the men of the 33rd Division's 19th Brigade. It was to be another multi-battalion attack, with the 1st Cameronians on the left to take the wood from the northwest and push towards the northeast, and the 5th, 6th Scottish Rifles on the right, with the 20th Royal Fusiliers right behind the Scots. The second Royal Welsh Fusiliers would be in reserve for the attack on High Wood. Gordon Highlanders and the 8th Devonshires would be part of 7th Division's 20th Brigade's attack on Wood Lane Trench to the right. The second Royal Welsh Fusiliers was a unit of Robert Graves, Frank Richards, Siegfried Sassoon, David Jones, and at least one or two others, I believe. The attack plan for the 20th of July was for the Scottish battalions to clear High Wood and the switch line inside it, with the 20th Royal Fusiliers, also known as the 3rd Public Schools Battalion, a PALS unit, assigned mop-up operations in the 2nd Royal Welsh in reserve. The plan can best be summed up in the 2nd Royal Welsh Commander's briefing, as recorded by Robert Graves, in his memoir, Goodbye to All That. In Graves' well-known work, Lieutenant Colonel Crochet, exhibiting a wary and cynical eye towards sister battalions, stated, quote, Look here, you fellows. We're in reserve for this attack. The Cameronians and the 5th Scottish Rifles are going up the wood first. That's at 5 a.m. The public schools battalions are in support, if anything goes wrong. I don't know whether we shall be called on. If we are, it will mean the jocks have legged it, as usual. End quote. Crochet continued, quote, The public schools battalion is, well, we know what it is. So if we're called for, that will be the end of us. End quote. Regarding this last comment, Graves wrote, quote, He said this with a laugh, and we all laughed. End quote. Highwood had been getting hit with artillery ever since the Germans had retaken it on the 15th, and the steady barrage continued through the night of the 19th. The whole area was under a constant rain of shells as both British and German iron and steel screeched, whistled, and screamed through the air. At 02.55 a.m., the pre-attack bombardment began and the hellish wood became a scene of tree stumps and flames backlit by exploding shells. As the Germans hunkered down inside high wood, the Cameronians and the Scottish rifles scrambled up from Crucifix Corner towards the jump-off line. They did so under constant German shelling that plucked men away in groups, and as a result, the supporting public schools battalion bunched up in the jump-off trench with the first wave. It was a chaotic situation. The attack began when the British artillery lifted at 0335, and the Scotsmen up and bounded for the smoldering tree stumps. The second attack on High Wood was underway. As the Scottish jocks entered the wood, they found the usual scene following a heavy artillery bombardment. Devastated trenches and dazed enemy troops with little aptitude for a fight. A number of Germans were taken prisoner within minutes. A few were clear-headed enough to raise rifles against the oncoming Englishmen, 
and were quickly shot down. Inside the wood, the attacking Tommies quickly became intermingled amongst the broken trees and the hanging shreds of broken and rotting bodies. The southern half of High Wood was quickly cleared despite the confusion amongst the attackers. Things went fairly well until the Cameronians came within range of the dug-in machine gun nest at the northeast corner of the wood. The gun and its crew had survived the barrage, and they opened up on the khaki-clad men in front of them. From there, the attack began to quickly fall apart. As the jocks fought through the fire to reach the battered switch line, surviving German riflemen began to shoot them down, causing considerable casualties. The German machine gun team then turned to mow down the Gordon Highlanders and the Devonshires, attacking Wood Lane between High Wood and Longueval. German shells began to fall in the cleared southern half of High Wood, blasting men, trenches, and trees apart. The attack was stopped, and everyone sought to dig in wherever they could. The chaos only got worse, as almost all of the attacking battalion's leadership were dead or wounded by this point. The public school's battalion's commander had walked out early in the attack as a walking wounded case. The rest of the leadership was shot down. The rookie troops began to disintegrate under the strain of the pounding German shellfire. Quote, from quite early, the unfortunate Royal Fusiliers men seemed to be getting killed all over the place to no purpose, end quote, noted a survivor. A regimental sergeant major attached to the public school's battalion stepped in and began to draw back any survivors to a trench line being hastily dug in the middle of the wood. He rallied his men as the German counterattack came down on them. Company Sergeant Major Doherty a member of the Cameronians in High Wood that day, heard the Germans coming. Quote, there was a terrific howling and shouting away on the left, and word passed along that Jerry was attacking. At first, there was nothing to be seen from the right side of the wood as there was a slight rise just to our front. Then our Lewis guns and rifles opened up from the front, and the men in my section started to blaze away. I stood up, sheltered to my right, and, looking to the dip in front of the wood, saw the old Bosch coming on in hundreds. They were big, upstanding fellows, with brand new uniforms, and had evidently just been flung into the battle. The way they were going was straight across our front, and you couldn't miss them. They were only about 150 yards away. I fired as rapidly as I could, and must have used about 30 or 40 rounds. But they gained a footing in the wood, and drove us back. Every officer, with the exception of Lieutenant Coltert, had been killed or wounded, and practically all the warrant officers and sergeants had gone west. End quote. The attack pushed the Scotsmen and the pals out of the wood. Although confused fighting, amidst choking black artillery smoke continued. The Germans now brought down their iron rain south of High Wood, and it was mid-morning when the 2nd Royal Welsh Fusiliers were called up to reinforce the collapsing situation. The Fusiliers marched up through Happy Valley and into Bazentan Les Petites village graveyard where they assembled. Lieutenant Robert Graves and some 200 others would never make it to the battle, 
as German shelling was fierce and was knocking down men left and right. Quote, The German batteries were handing out heavy stuff, six and eight inch, and so much of it that we decided to move back 50 yards at a rush. As we did so, an eight inch shell burst three paces behind me. I heard the explosion and felt as though I had been punched rather hard between the shoulder blades, but without any pain. I took the punch merely for the shock of the explosion. Then blood trickled into my eye, and, turning faint, I called to Moody. I've been hit. Then I fell. A minute or two before, I had got two very small wounds on my left hand, and in exactly the same position as the two that drew blood from my right hand during the preliminary bombardment at Luce. This I took as a lucky sign, and for further security, repeated to myself a line of Nietzsche's in French translation. Non, tu ne me peux pas tuer. One piece of shell went through my left thigh, high up, near the groin. I must have been at the full stretch of my stride to escape emasculation. The wound over the eye was made by a little chip of marble, possibly from one of the Bazantin Cemetery headstones. Later, I had it cut out, but a smaller piece has since risen to the surface under my right eyebrow, where I keep it for a souvenir. This, and a finger wound which split the bone, probably came from another shell bursting in front of me. But a piece of shell had also gone in two inches below the point of my right shoulder blade and came out through my chest two inches above the right nipple. Graves was later reported as died of wounds, with a heartbreaking notice going out to his family. But he, of course, survived. The rest of the Royal Welsh slammed into the wood at full force later that morning. Within a short time, they had re-cleared High Wood. Their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Crawshay, later remarked in a letter to Robert Graves, quote, I have never seen such magnificent and wonderful disregard for death as I saw that day. It was almost uncanny it was so great. I once heard an old officer in the Royal Welsh say the men would follow you to hell. But these chaps would bring you back and put you in a dugout in heaven. End quote. The Royal Welsh worked desperately to hold on to the wood through the night with the remnants of the Gordon Highlanders who drifted into the wood after the brutal and bloody failure of the Wood Lane assault. Cameronians, 5th, 6th Scottish Rifles, and Public Schools Pals men. During the night, another German counterattack pushed the Tommies out of the northern half of the wood again. Frank Richards, a signaler in the Royal Welsh, later wrote in his own memoir, Old Soldiers Never Die. Quote, The brigade, which was still hanging on to three parts of the wood, was relieved at 10 p.m., three quarters of them being casualties. The public school's battalion was practically annihilated, and the Royal Welsh were not much better off. We had lost 10 of our 18 signalers, but Paddy and Tick were safe. Half the brigade had been knocked over before they ever entered the wood. It was the custom that all parcels that arrived for men who were casualties should be distributed among the survivors. 
The commanding officer of the public school's battalion kindly sent a number of mailbags full of parcels for distribution among our men. We lived on luxuries for the next few days. End quote. Half of high wood had been taken. All of the attacking units of the 20th of July had been mauled or decimated, with the Cameronians and the public schools battalion suffering particularly heavy losses of nearly 400 men each. The public schools pals later got a bad rap from hearsay that Robert Graves had written into his memoir, Goodbye to All That, that the pals and the jocks had melted away in the dark. This was not the case, and while Graves said so in his book, the charges stuck. As author Terry Norman noted in his book, The Hell They Called High Wood, the 20th of July was another bad day for the British Fourth Army. Its attacks were repulsed everywhere. High Wood, Delville Wood, Guillemot. It was also the day when a young up-and-coming major and recent recipient of the Victoria Cross for actions at Longival, Billy Congreve, was killed by a sniper's bullet. He was the son of 13th Corps Commander Walter Congreve, and Billy had been serving in his father's corps. Death flailed its artillery fingers everywhere on the Somme battlefield, taking men by the hundreds. Death took whatever would fall to his scythe. Two days later, an artillery barrage blasted the remnants of Mamet's wood. One of the men killed in the German bombardment was named Edward Charles Ingoville Williams. What makes him stand out is that at the time of his death, he was Major General Edward Charles Ingoville Williams, commander of the British 34th Division. He was killed on his return from inspecting some of the troops. With the failure of the attacks of the 20th, the depleted 33rd Division was relieved by the 51st Highland Division. The 33rd had lost 5,200 men in actions around High Wood, and according to the history of the Highland Division, many of those men and those of other divisions remained on the fields where they fell. Quote, to the left of the wood and the trench lines, which were not continuously connected up, curved in a southwesterly direction towards bazenton le petit leaving the wood as the apex of an acute salient. In this section of the front, the trenches seemed to fulfill no tactical requirements. There was no depth to the defensive system. The trenches were little more than knee-deep and were choked with dead. The whole of this area had been the scene of repeated encounters, as the ground amply testified. In the undergrowth of the wood and in the standing corn, which covered the whole area, lay the dead of many different regiments. The result was that, owing to the scorching summer weather, the troops in the line lived in an atmosphere of pollution and in a positive torment of bluebottle flies. In one sap in particular, as one moved along it, the flies rose in such clouds that their buzzing sounded as the noise of a threshing machine. In this sap, 
Sentries could only tolerate the conditions by standing with their handkerchiefs tied over their mouths and nostrils. End quote. On the night of the 22nd to the 23rd, the 51st Highland had its first go at the Hellhole Wood, launching the 4th Gordon Highlanders, the 1st Royal West Kents, and the 9th Royal Scots at it. The 14th Royal Warwicks, a PALS unit from Birmingham, would support with an attack on Wood Lane Trench between High Wood and Longueval. The attack went in at 10 in the evening on the 22nd, and sadly, all attacking battalions failed to meet their objectives of seizing the wood and silencing the machine gun redoubt in the wood's northeastern corner. The Germans had dug a new trench northwest of High Wood named Intermediate Trench, and it was connected to the switch line. At Wood Lane, the Warwick's pals men were annihilated. The battalion lost 485 men for not an inch of gained ground. The next major attack went in a week later, on the evening of the 30th of July. Since the failure of the attacks of the 23rd, the Highland Division had kept pressing on the Germans, maintaining contact with them as ordered from higher up. Behind High Wood, the constant downward stream of wounded and the upward stream of marching infantry and supply teams continued to face the constant rain of German shells. For the attack on the 30th, the 51st Division would be attacking High Wood and Wood Lane yet again, this time with the 153rd Brigade. The 7th Black Watch would strike at the wood, and Wood Lane would be hit by the 5th Gordon Highlanders and the 6th Black Watch. The Ladies from Hell, as the dark-kilted men of the Black Watch were nicknamed, would be in on this attack. To the Highland Division's left, the 19th Division would be going after Intermediate Trench. On their right, the 5th Division would be supporting with another attack on Wood Lane as well. The bombardment came crashing down at 4.45 on the afternoon of the 30th, and it rocked the area. But it was inaccurate. British gunners couldn't get eyes on the German line, as for the most part, it lay on the reverse slope of the high ground. At 18.10 local time, or 6.10 p.m., the bombardment ended and the jocks went over the top. The 7th Black Watch made it over the bodies of their comrades and enemies until they reached that eastern corner of the wood again, where the rattled Germans had survived the bombardment to now mow them down. In Wood Lane, it was the same. Enough German troops survived to mow down the Gordons and the 6th Black Watch. The attack failed. Elsewhere, at Longueval and Delville Wood, the 4th Army had made some gains that set the Germans off. On the 31st, they unleashed a storm of hate across the front line from Delville to High Woods. Behind the British lines, another storm was unleashed, that of Major General Haldane, commander of the 3rd Division. Haldane had an opinion of all the recent attacks on the Somme. Quote, Attack on High Wood failed. That on Guillemont will be difficult. It is a great pity that piecemeal attacks are being made, 
They are quite unsound and very costly. The Germans can concentrate much artillery on them and shell us out of captured trenches, but the high authorities never seem to learn lessons which are obvious to those who have to carry out their plans, even if they had learned the folly of such tactics in the infancy of their careers." End quote. Haldane had a point. General Sir Henry Rawlinson had been throwing one, two, and three battalion attacks at certain points on the Somme battlefront, but what was needed was a strong attack all across the line. Otherwise, the Germans could always shift resources and meet every new threat. Sure, the Germans were bleeding like stuck pigs as well, but they were still able to stop almost all attacks. From the French side, General Joseph Joffre was grumbling loudly about these same British penny packet attacks as well, as well as the lack of progress with the British Fourth Army. But if Joffre thought his kvetching would make things better, he was quite wrong. July bowed out, and August took over the calendar. It was to be a miserable month for the British Army. It was a month of frustration, casualties, and infinitesimal territorial gains almost everywhere. Pozier, Highwood, Delville Wood, and Longueval, and Guillemont. Raleigh would be focusing his efforts on Guillemont throughout the first half of August, as he needed to improve his position there in order to conduct a joint Anglo-French attack on the 18th. The battle for Highwood further hammered home the point that this was an incredibly difficult war to fight for the generals, and the troops too, of course. All wars have their hellish challenges, but the problems facing the adversaries on the Western Front in 1916 was that neither side could break the damned trench deadlock. And while our perceptions of the war was that of lions led by donkeys, and the image of callous chateau generals, this isn't even close to the entire truth. Soldiers, generals, and civilians back home were constantly innovating and trying to produce new methods and technology that would defeat the trench defender and get the war back to one of maneuver. While the 51st Highland Division was in the Highwood Line, they tried some good old-fashioned trickery. The Germans had suddenly dug Intermediate Trench out of nowhere, creating a whole new set of problems for the Tommies on the ground. The area of High Wood and Wood Lane featured a rise of ground in no man's land that kept British and German eyes off each other. While this was bad in terms of maintaining a visual on the enemy, it could have its advantages. You simply had to look to find them. Brigadier General Pelham Byrne, commander of the Highlander 152nd Brigade, was one of those guys who looked for advantages. He ordered a huge working party out into the no man's land in front of Wood Lane on the night of August 3rd. Their mission was to dig a new trench line without the Germans knowing it. With the constant boom and bang of artillery everywhere, 
this was no problem. In a feat of workhorse labor that makes my Portuguese ox bones jealous, the Highlanders pulled it off with our Germans as near as 50 yards being none the wiser. The Bosches woke up the next morning to find that the English were 250 yards closer than they had been when the sun went down. Brigadier General Byrne also wanted to deal with the machine gun redoubt in High Wood's northeast corner, the one that was almost single-handedly destroying every attempt to take the wood. Going over the ground was not working, so Byrne cocked his head to the side and thought, Let's get under it. Within hours of his idea, Royal Engineers began digging a mine shaft from British lines inside High Wood. They were aiming towards that redoubt. Other innovations introduced at High Wood were Barrett hydraulic forcing jacks, nicknamed pipe pushers, because that was basically what they did. This machinery pushed an ammonel-filled pipe underground towards German lines. Once the desired length had been reached, the pipes would be detonated, blowing the Germans out of their trenches. Or so it was hoped. I've so far been unable to locate a photo of these machines on the interwebs. So if anyone out there has one and is willing to share, please feel free to do so. Livens projectors were used here as well. Now here, things were getting medieval. The projectors were fat mortar tubes buried into the ground. At attack time, a canister would be launched out of the tube at the Germans, and upon impact, the canister would explode and cover everything with flaming oil. The British also brought up a couple of flamethrowers. These weren't like the German Flammenwerfer that werft Flammen off a guy's back. These were monstrous two-ton beasts that had to be carried into high wood piece by piece by Tommies already carrying their combat loads. Throughout August, another new battlefield innovation was being transported to France under the greatest and strictest security controls. These new inventions were being massed nearby for the right time and British Commander-in-Chief General Sir Douglas Haig was excited to release them in an attack. We won't talk about this innovation right now, though. If you know your history, though, you know what's coming. General Rawlinson, commander of the British Fourth Army, was focused on taking Guillemont, village southeast of Longueval, and this was in order for a broader attack that was to take place alongside the French on the 18th of August. In the meantime, the Highlander Division kept working away at the German positions in High Wood and Wood Lane. The Tommies kept patrolling no man's land, ever in search of new information on the German line. New trench saps were constantly being dug forward, both to get closer to the enemy and to build new jump-off points for the next attack. Local probing attacks continued. The Germans responded to all of this with heavy shelling of British frontline traces, as well as happy and flat iron valleys further back. The British replied with their own artillery, 
although with guns getting worn out from constant use and the Germans being on the reverse slope of the high ground, many shells hit their own men. It was during this time that Lieutenant Ewart A. McIntosh, whose poem began episode 18, was wounded. He was eventually sent back to England to recover. During the second week of August, the 51st Highland Division was relieved by the 33rd, and over 2,000 men had been lost to the wood. The 33rd was back in for a second tour of high wood after its previous mauling. Fighting, bombing, and shelling continued until the 17th, when British artillery opened up a 36-hour bombardment meant to pulverize the Germans in high wood. Nearly all of the previously mentioned new tools would be used in the attack. Zero hour came at 1445 on the 18th, after British artillery had ripped through the Tommies getting ready to go over the top. The friendly fire buried some of the Livens projectors, and when they fired, they landed short. The defending Germans probably crapped themselves with flaming oil exploding in front of them. But that was the worst of it. The pipe pushers exploded in the front line of the 2nd Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders rather than in the German front line ahead, causing casualties and calling German snipers to that area. The Highlanders, that by force of will made it into no man's land, were then scythed down by German machine gunners. The attack failed even before it started. The Wood Lane attacks failed too. To the right of High Wood, the 4th Suffolk's and 4th King's Liverpool Regiment also met a fierce response to their going over the top amidst the long since destroyed corn crop and rotting flesh of former attackers. Arthur Russell from the Brigade Machine Gun Company was at the back of the King's Liverpool assault wave. Quote, My gun team of six men, five gunners and one ammunition carrier, had barely moved ten yards when a terrific explosion blew me off my feet. Earth and sandbags cascaded down and the sides of the trench caved in on me. Stunned and dazed, I dragged myself out of the tumbled debris and retrieved the vicar's gun, which had fallen off my shoulders. Two yards in front of me, the gunner who had been carrying the tripod lay face down in the bottom of the trench, a large, gory gash across the small of his back where a large piece of shell had plowed its way through. He was groaning and just conscious. Turning around, I saw another gunner on his knees, a great wound at the back of his neck from which blood was spurting freely. His head had gone forward, and his steel helmet, held suspended by its strap, was hanging down below his face. It was full of blood and overflowing. He was dead. Then I saw the attached infantryman extricate himself from the tumbled heap of earth and sandbags, apparently unhurt. There were still two of the team to be accounted for. Pulling at the sandbags and earth piled in the trench soon revealed their limp and lifeless bodies. Most of the infantry were now over the top, but quite a number had been killed or wounded, as had my mates. Only a few yards from the spot where my gun team had been decimated was the shattered and bleeding body of a sergeant of the King's Liverpools, 
who barely half an hour ago had told the men of his platoon and myself that he was for it this trip. End quote. One group of Liverpool men captured a German trench but faced an immediate counterattack. Lance Corporal William Preston was there and was one of the first to see what would become an iconic item on the battlefield. Quote, We got most of them. It was the first time we saw the Germans with steel helmets. End quote. These were the M1916 coal scuttle style helmets that were becoming better suited to the conditions over the older Pickelhaube design. So on it went through August. The shelling, always the roar and the scream of incoming shells. The heat of summer and the stench of the dead everywhere. They lay on the ground. They were in the trench walls. They were hastily packed into shell holes. The attacks and the digging and everyone had diarrhea, adding just another factor that made high wood a hell on earth within the larger hell on earth that was the Somme. The Germans clung on ferociously, but not without a heavy price. Through July, an estimated 8,000 men had been lost defending the wood, and the losses continued through the rest of the summer. British troops in the sector were under enormous strain. Frank Richards noted in Old Soldiers Never Die that some of them were cracking under the pressure of the front, and not in the expected ones and twos, but in groups. The meat grinder of the Somme was getting to everyone. More attacks were planned, particularly a big one scheduled for the 15th of September by Rawlinson. But for that to proceed successfully, the British Fourth Army needed to have high wood secure. To secure high wood, another go at it was required, as well as eliminating the infuriating redoubt in the wood's northeastern corner. Another bombardment of the thoroughly destroyed wood and its harvest of quartered bodies, this time accompanied by a million-round machine-gun barrage aimed at German lines and executed by Captain Hutchinson and his men. It was this horizontal rain of bullets that terrified the Germans the most, even more than the mine that exploded under the northeastern corner redoubt and sent many Germans to kingdom come. But on the 3rd of September, the mine was blown to, and before the dust settled, Scots of the first Black Watch took the smoking crater. To the east of the wood, a section of Wood Lane Trench was finally wrenched from the Germans. Inevitably, though, the Germans launched a furious counterattack that retook the crater. From there, they set up machine guns and enfiladed Wood Lane, sending everyone back to their starting point. The Germans established a new redoubt in that now diabolical corner of High Wood. But no worries. The clay kickers of the tunneling companies dug a new mine shaft in the same spot as the old one in just a few days. On the 8th of September, they blew that one too, sending another crew of Germans into the heavens. The crater was seized by Tommies once again. Once again, the crater was lost an hour and a half later when Germans of the Bavarian 4th 
and 5th Bayerische Regimente stormed it and took it back. In Wood Lane, things went better, and 2nd Lieutenant Victor Russell was with the 1st of the 6th King's Liverpool attack that day. Quote, We had just returned to the line and had taken over a stretch of the front below the ridge upon which High Wood stood, and to the left of a sunken road running up the hill across which the Germans had built a strong point or roadblock. It was surrounded by barbed wire with a couple of machine guns mounted there. Some 150 to 200 yards to its rear and covering it lay a switch trench that was heavily manned and contained more machine guns. Our side kept up a continuous heavy artillery barrage on the German positions all along the ridge. In return, they plastered us with counterfire, which was not quite so heavy as ours, but bad enough. The noise was simply horrendous and stunning, and its effects shattering. In a queer sort of way, we got used to it. On Saturday, after a series of small local skirmishes, A Company and a company from our 1st of the 5th Battalion to the right of the sunken road advanced on each side. Both companies attacked under a Stokes mortar barrage while a bombing party worked up the road itself. My snipers were out on each side, trying for targets of opportunity. The Stokes barrage stopped abruptly and without warning. They had run out of ammunition. The first attack failed with heavy losses as the bombers on the road came up against uncut wire. Dead and wounded lay out in the open, and as the wounded were being attended by three or four chaps who hadn't been badly hit, Machine guns from the switch trench suddenly opened up on them. The machine gunners traversed backwards and forwards until all movement ceased. I went up the road to see what was happening and got stuck in a shell hole. A little later, the Stokes mortars received a fresh supply of ammunition and the strong point was taken. A short time afterwards, a mine was blown in high wood. Huge clouds of debris shot into the sky as the artillery barrage rose to a shrieking crescendo. Suddenly it stopped, and, though the ground still trembled, an eerie silence fell, broken by a skylark high above us, singing its heart out. We all looked up in wonder, but before we had time to take the little miracle in, a barrage from massed machine guns began all along the small ridge behind us. Under this cover, the KRRC on our left, with the Guards Brigade on our right, rose and started up the hill in three waves, their bayoneted rifles held at the high port and the sun flashing on their blades. Each wave dressed by the right as though on parade, and they moved forward and upwards in perfect order. At first, there was no response whatsoever from the stunned Germans. Then their machine guns started to chatter. One after another, the men began to fall. I remember seeing the guard sergeants checking the dressing and filling the gaps as more and more fell. Then they were all at the top of the ridge and all the bayonets flashed down, as though at a word of command, before they disappeared into the pall of dust and smoke which crowned the ridge. In this attack, the guards bypassed the roadblock and veered in behind the German positions. As they did so, about 150 Germans clambered out of their trench, threw their rifles away, and came downhill towards us with hands up. 
A machine gun officer pushed me to one side, plonked himself down behind a vicar's and growled, By God, no you don't. Before we could stop him, he had pressed his thumbs down on the firing studs and was traversing left and right along their line. You see, he had witnessed the massacre of our wounded earlier in the afternoon. End quote. Wood Lane was finally in British hands. Delville Wood and Zhangxi to the east had been cleared, paving the way for the next big attack on the 15th. But the lines in High Wood remained the same, and Frank Richards' description of them from the beginning of September remains fitting. Quote, Our trench ran from just inside the wood to the center of it, and we dumped our telephone on the fire step in a bay by ourselves. Anyone leaving the center of the wood would have to pass us to make their way to the communication trenches. Some parts of the parapet had been built up with dead men, and here and there arms and legs were protruding. In one bay, only the heads of two men could be seen. Their teeth were showing so that they seemed to be grinning horribly down on us. Some of our chaps that had survived the attack on the 20th of July told me that when they were digging themselves in, the ground being hardened by the sun and difficult to dig away quickly, if a man was killed near them, he was used as head cover and earth was thrown over him. No doubt, in many cases, this saved the lives of the men that were digging themselves in. The troops who relieved them would immediately begin to deepen the trench, and since that time, the rain and shells had exposed the bodies in their different ways. End quote. The first attacks on High Wood had been on the 15th of July. It was now the 9th of September, and these accursed 75 acres of blasted chestnut trees were still largely in German hands. Nearly two months had gone by, and this otherwise insignificant bump of earth still sat under the enemy's hobnailed boots. So Highwood will sit there for a little bit longer. Where we are as far as the timeline for the psalm is between late July and the beginning of September right now. And next time, we're going into Guillemot. As the Battle for High Wood has featured so many Scottish units, I want to conclude this episode with another poem by Lieutenant McIntosh, this one titled Three Battles. The following came from the part of the poem about High Wood. Oh, gay were we in spirit in the hours of the night when we lay at rest at Albert and waited for the fight. Gay and gallant were we on the day that we set forth, but broken, broken, broken is the valor of the North. The wild war pipes were calling, our hearts were blithe and free. When we went up the valley to the death we could not see. Clear lay the wood before us in the clear summer weather, but broken, broken, broken are the sons of the heather. In the cold of the morning, in the burning of the day, the thin lines stumbled forward, the dead and dying lay. By the unseen death that caught us, by the bullets raging hail, 
Broken, broken, broken is the pride of the gale. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at ww1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on Facebook. Thanks again for the reviews, and thank you as always for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. We're going to close the episode out with another small tribute to the Scots. It's bagpipes, and whenever I hear bagpipes, I generally lose it right away. So, you have been warned. Talk to you again soon. Take care. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.